Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. This week we present Sylvia Albert of Common Cause, who examines the Republican Party's current effort in 33 states to pass more than 100 bills that would make it more difficult to vote. Tina Johnson, director of the National Black Environmental Justice Network, who discusses the equity and justice impact of carbon pricing as a mechanism to address climate change. And Thomas Gokey, a visual artist, organizer, and co-founder of the group Debt Collective, who talks about the current national campaign pressuring President Biden and Congress to take action now to cancel student debt. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. After a decade of civil war, a path towards peace and power-sharing has emerged in oil-rich Libya. A new interim executive team was approved in United Nations talks in Geneva. The new interim government pledged to unify rival governments in Tripoli and Benghazi and hold democratic elections by the end of the year. The central figure in the new government is Abdul Hamid Diba, a wealthy businessman who had close ties to the Qaddafi regime. However, analysts have said Diba is viewed by the Libyan elite as a non-ideological dealmaker with whom all sides can negotiate. Since the ouster of dictator Muammar Gaddafi by the United States and its allies during the Arab Spring, Libyans have been mired in violence and chaos. What matters most to them is ending the warfare by rival militias, intermittent energy blackouts, hospitals strained by coronavirus, lack of medicines and the rising prices of basic food and gasoline. China has recently unveiled plans to build the world's largest dam on a sacred river in Tibet. The project is seen as an effort to produce more hydropower in order to transition to a zero-carbon economy by 2060. The huge dam would provide three times the hydropower of the Three Gorges Dam on China's Yangtze River, which forced the relocation of 1.4 million people. However, the proposed 60-gigawatt dam on Tibet's Sangpo River has raised harsh criticism from Tibetan nationals, environmentalists, and neighboring India. A spokesperson for India's ministry in charge of managing its water resources said it would respond with a 10-gigawatt dam project on a tributary of the same river. The Tibetan Plateau is a source of drinking water for 1.8 billion people in India, China, and Bhutan. Al Jazeera reports that the Tibet Policy and Support Act, recently signed into law by the U.S. Congress, outlined a commitment to encourage a regional framework on water security to facilitate cooperative agreements among all nations on the Tibetan Plateau. On February 1st, Oregon became the first state to decriminalize personal use of hard drugs such as heroin, LSD, methamphetamine, and oxycodone. Substance abuse treatment will be funded by the state's tax on legal marijuana. The drug reform measure was approved last fall by Oregon voters by a 58% margin, a measure opposed by state prosecutors. 
Now, when caught using hard drugs, a person will receive a fine of $100, which can be waived with a health assessment and addiction counseling. The law is expected to result in a 90% drop in arrests for possession of hard drugs and an estimated 1,800 fewer drug felony convictions. The reform law is expected to have a major impact on communities of color where many find themselves trapped in the criminal justice system. Oregon's plan is modeled on drug policies enacted in Portugal, Switzerland, and the Netherlands, with a decriminalization of small amounts of hard drugs linked with treatment and harm reduction. Portugal, which legalized personal possession of drugs in 2001, saw a 20% drop in overdose deaths and fewer HIV infections. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. The 2020 U.S. election had the highest voter turnout in more than a century. And according to former President Donald Trump's own cybersecurity and infrastructure security agency, was the most secure in modern American history. But despite the success of last year's election, amid the worst pandemic in 100 years, the Republican Party is now engaged in an effort to make it more difficult for millions of Americans to vote. Based on Donald Trump's big lie, alleging massive voter fraud and election irregularities in 2020, Republican legislators in 33 states have proposed more than 165 bills to restrict voting. In what many observers assert is a blatant campaign of voter suppression that mainly targets communities of color. At the same time, legislators in 37 states have introduced over 500 bills to expand voting access. Your reporter spoke with Sylvia Albert, director of the Voting and Elections Program at Common Cause. Here she talks about the work she and others are doing across the country to oppose the GOP-sponsored voter suppression bills and support the expansion of voter access. It is very striking um, that what we have seen across the board by uh, legislatures, mostly Republican legislatures, is an attempt to suppress the vote. We saw a record turnout this year, and it was partially due to the various ways that voters were able to access the ballot, be that early vote, vote by mail, drop boxes, in-person voting on election day. And that was a really successful election, and we know that it was the most secure election. Um, unfortunately, what we are seeing now is really uh, legislature saying, oops, sorry, we didn't actually want you to vote. Um, and that is really the only way I can interpret these laws that are being proposed, laws that would revoke no-excuse absentee voting, laws that would require you to submit a photocopy of an ID if you tried to vote absentee, um, laws that would cut early voting or ban Dropbox usage. All of these proposals tell me that these legislatures don't want constituents to vote. Sylvia, most of the supporters of these voting restrictive bills 
rationalize it by claiming there was massive fraud at the polls, echoing the same charge, the same baseless charge that Trump and many Republican politicians leveled at the election in 2020, that somehow mail-in ballots uh, permitted massive fraud and stole the election from Trump. Is this what you're hearing from state legislatures, that these new bills are predicated on the false notion that there was massive fraud in 2020? Um, that is what state legislatures are publicly saying, but I, I believe, and um, many of my colleagues believe, that these legislatures um, know full well that that is false and do not in any way believe uh, the uh, big lie, but are using it to their political advantage. And generally speaking, what's the dimension of racism that we see here? We saw the Republicans after the 2020 election, target various majority communities of color cities, trying to disqualify votes from places like uh, Pittsburgh, Atlanta, Milwaukee, and other cities, you know, in just a brazen attempt to uh, disenfranchise millions of American voters, but mostly targeted on black voters living in large cities and battleground states. What, what can you say about these attempts at uh, new voter suppression legislation and uh, whether or not they're they're continuing to target black voters. I do believe they are absolutely continuing to target black voters. The Georgia legislature itself passed no excuse absentee voting in 2005, and it's been used over the last 15 years, but mostly not by black and brown voters. And so it's only now after those voters have used this avenue that they are now attempting to undermine it. Also, we saw extreme turnout in black communities through early vote. We saw, you know, five, six hour lines on every single day of early vote. And again, legislatures are trying to cut early vote. We know that souls to the polls is a great get out the vote opportunity in the black community of moving uh, voters from their churches uh, together to march to a polling location. So attempting to close down early vote on weekends again, is clearly, to me, um, a uh, directed at black and brown voters. Sylvia, one of the overarching uh, remedies to voter suppression is a piece of legislation known as the For the People Act, H.R. 1. Tell us a bit about that piece of legislation, which I believe was voted on and passed in the U.S. House, but blocked in the Senate last year. But it's up again. And what would it do to confront and push back against voter suppression tactics state by state? Well, what this law would do would be to make sure that every American had the same rights and the same access to the ballot, and that your access did not depend on your zip code. So whether you live in Texas, Oklahoma, or California, you would be able to register to vote online, and you would be able to vote absentee if you so desired, and you would be able to vote early if you so desired. So this bill would basically say to legislatures, sorry, you can't take away these rights. They are enshrined in federal law. This is the floor. Um, you cannot go below that. And unfortunately, what we're seeing is that without the For the People Act and other federal legislation, there is nothing to stop uh, state legislatures from eroding the right to vote for the constituents that they don't want to vote. That was Sylvia Albert, director of the Voting and Elections Program with Common Cause.
learn more about the efforts now underway to oppose voter suppression legislation and promote increased voter access by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. One of the most contentious issues in the environmental and climate movement today is carbon pricing, that is, placing a price on carbon emissions and allowing companies to pay to pollute. The concept is the more polluters have to pay, the more likely they are to clean up their emissions. While carbon pricing has been shown to reduce atmospheric carbon emissions in some multi-state agreements, low-income neighborhoods and communities of color maintain they're paying the price of continued pollution close to home. Over the past two years, confidential dialogues called Transforming the Conversation on Carbon Pricing, or TCCP, have been undertaken by a range of climate justice activists and policy advocates in order to cultivate common ground, inclusive of the labor, faith, environmental justice sectors, and big green environmental movements. Before the coronavirus pandemic, participants gathered at the Deep South Center for Environmental Justice, which was joined in the project by the Pricing Carbon Initiative, Citizens Climate Lobby, and the Karuna Center for Peacebuilding. Between the Lines, Melinda Tuhu spoke with Tina Johnson, a writer, consultant, and director of the National Black Environmental Justice Network. Here she explains the goals of the dialogue, which for now are taking place virtually due to COVID health restrictions. I think the key framework of environmental justice is the equity and justice lens. I guess a good word would be, or two words would be cumulative impacts, <laughs> right? Or distributive uh, impacts. So it's really looking at where is the equity and justice in the way in which we are de developing or designing policy. What are the impacts over time? Not just what can the market bear? When we talk about the economics of the modeling that's done around any sort of pricing mechanism, it never takes into account cumulative impacts. It doesn't take into distribution of the co-benefits of what that looks like for communities on the ground. And so you, what you end up having is a lot of communities that are impacted adversely with regulation or market-based mechanisms because their needs don't become part of the actual modeling or the equation of what this would look like over time for the human aspect of it. And my understanding of it, I have a, a layman's understanding of this, but most of the time we look at impacts from an industry perspective and the industry's ability to have a sort of how much you can pollute in like the water systems, for example, there is a, a real clear industry level of pollution that is permissible um, but we're not looking at it from a health impact uh, perspective. So if we were to look at that and say, well, what are the health uh, levels that are actually reasonable for human beings, then that would be a very different level of uh, permissibility compared to that of the industry um, level. The equity and justice lens is the human lens. It's really about the fairness. I, you can't just have it be one way. And the way that most of the policies are talked about is like, we'll do the policy now and we'll do the pricing now and then we'll readjust later. And that never happens. They never go back and say, oh, we now see the impacts. So we need to adjust what we what we started doing because they've already started doing. It's like when you get a tax, 
we're only gonna have this tax for six years, but then that tax doesn't ever go away because you've already generated enough income that it becomes valuable. So the question is, can we look at the impacts, cumulative impacts beforehand? Can we look at the long-term co-benefits if they are, if there are any? Can we look at not just what reduction of carbon emission looks like, but what does the reduction of co-pollutants look like over time as well? So noxious gases. So it really becomes this holistic understanding of what we're looking at when we're designing policies that are going to ultimately impact and affect the people that live in and around um, these places. It's not brain surgery. Like it's, it's really clearly understood that this market-based approach, when it doesn't take these things into consideration, it does end up having greater harm than it does having greater benefit. So it is like this thing, if we considered the totality of all of these things, could we create better, a more effective policy that actually didn't give one side more than the other, but took in the human impact um, as part of the outcome? Tina Johnson, you have talked about working to unpack what people in this dialogue are thinking and why, and working toward alignment, not necessarily agreement. Could you elaborate on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think part of our nature as people is that we really want, we want people to agree with us. <laughs> and, and I just think that ultimately, before you can ever get to agreement, you have to at least have some alignment of understanding of where you're both coming from. And that alignment comes in that I can clearly say back to you, I understand where you're coming from and I understand these are your issues. I may not agree with the perspective or the position you're in, but I can, there's some alignment of understanding. And then from there, any opportunity to find commonality, are there things that are in common, even if we're not in agreement? And then if there's commonality, there might be an opportunity to find some agreement, even if that agreement means you both are willing or people are willing to then shift or change uh, the way they think or the way that they are going about addressing issues because now they have new information. But the ultimate goal is not that agreement. I liken it to personal intimate relationships. When we're most successful in them, it's when we don't necessarily agree, but we feel, feel understood. And then that builds trust because at least I've been heard and seen and respected. Are you willing to look at an equity and justice lens? Um, as we talk about it from an EJ perspective, cumulative impacts, because that's a very different conversation for folks who just think, oh, if we can give people a check, a dividend, they'll be happy to hear from an environmental justice person that says, you can't pay for me to have good health, <laughs> right? There's no amount of money that's going to provide me with clean air and clean water that I can breathe in my community. Can you give any examples of commonalities? One of them was that to look more deeply at policy and to evaluate what's being proposed as potential legislation from an equity and justice lens. That was Tina Johnson, director of the National Black Environmental Justice Network and a participant in Transforming the Conversation on Carbon Pricing Dialogue. Learn more about the National Conversation on Carbon Pricing and Environmental Justice by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org.
the Federal Reserve estimated at the end of 2020 that 45 million Americans collectively owed more than $1.7 trillion in student loans, an increase of nearly 4% over the same period last year. U.S. student debt has increased by approximately 102% in the past 10 years. As a presidential candidate, Joe Biden campaigned to make ambitious changes in U.S. higher education, as well as making a commitment to relief for student loan borrowers. After the election, Biden's transition team said the president would expedite a request to Congress for $10,000 in loan cancellation for all federal borrowers. But at a CNN-sponsored town hall meeting on February 16th, Biden refused to support Democratic resolutions in both houses of Congress that called for the cancellation of $50,000 in student debt per borrower, maintaining he didn't have the authority through executive action to do so, and inferred the debt relief would primarily benefit affluent Ivy League college students with large loans. A group of 17 state attorneys general responded by asserting President Biden does have the authority to cancel student debt under the Higher Education Act. Your reporter spoke with Thomas Gokey, a visual artist, organizer, and co-founder of the group Debt Collective, who talks about the current national campaign pressuring Biden and Congress to take action now to cancel student debt. There's currently $1.7 trillion worth of student debt. 45 million people have student debt. It's intergenerational. We're seeing the group with the fastest growing debt balance, student debt balance, are actually senior citizens. Uh, there are parents who took out debt to send their kids to college. There are people who uh, have never been able to pay off their own student debt who are now trying to figure out how their children are going to be able to afford to get an education. Uh, it's disrupting people's lives in severe ways from their inability to have shelter, uh, whether that's buying a home or just renting an apartment. You know, even if you're current on your student loan, your debt to income ratio can prevent you from doing these other things. One of our members shared this story over the weekend. We had an event with uh, Nina Turner, who's running for Congress in Ohio. And one of our members said, you know, she can't get married. She's basically been engaged for six months, but it just doesn't make sense for her partner to sort of become legally responsible for this debt that's in her name. There are medical studies showing that people in student debt have higher blood pressure, greater stress levels, they get less sleep. And then if you zoom out to the macro level, it's a huge, huge drag on the economy. So even if you've already paid back all of your student debt, or even if you never had student debt to begin with, this $1.7 trillion worth of student debt is directly hurting you as well, and it benefits all of us to cancel it. The economists who have studied this can calculate the millions of jobs that get created each year, billions of dollars added to the, the GDP over the next decade. And we kind of need that right now, given everything that's going on. Um, so there's really no good reason not to do it. Student debt is almost perfectly calibrated to reinforce the American caste system. Black women hold the largest student debt burdens, whereas the children of the truly wealthy have no student debt at all. So canceling student debt helps us narrow the racial wealth gap. Again, there's just no good reason not to cancel at all. 
Review for our audience, Joe Biden's policy on canceling student debt, taking into account his response to a question from a student at a recent CNN town hall meeting where he said he would not make $50,000 per student debt cancellation happen. Very explicit about a no on that question. But what do we know about his policy in general? So our theory of change has never been that Joe Biden or any politician is going to do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. Right? So our theory of change is that betters need to organize and that the people have all of the power. And if we organize and get powerful enough, it almost doesn't matter what Joe Biden wants to do. He's going to have to do what we demand. And, you know, Joe Biden lied. <laughs> he, he does have this authority. And I'm not personally discouraged at all by the ridiculous things he said this week, because, you know, we've always known who he is, and it, it, that hasn't factored into our theory of how, how we're going to win. But it has been useful to see the enormous amount of anger and blowback that he and his administration have gotten for those comments. And uh, I think that that blowback is really um, useful, and it sends a very powerful message uh, that the Democrats should be frightened of. I mean, we know that one out of five Trump voters would vote for the Democrats if the Democrats canceled all student debt. That was polled. Last week, a poll was released that said 40 percent of black voters are not going to vote in the next election if Biden doesn't cancel student debt. So the electoral consequences here uh, couldn't be starker and uh, I think that they should take that seriously. It's the moral thing to do. It's the only thing that makes sense from an economic perspective. That debt is never going to get repaid. I mean, that's just a fact. Uh, I think we will win mass cancellation, but we're only going to win if we organize, right? We're only going to win what we organize for. Nothing is inevitable about this. So yeah, I mean, Biden absolutely has that authority, and he wasn't telling the truth. And a lot of people have pushed back and pointed out, you can't get away with just lying about this. We, we know you have the authority. Well, Thomas, we're, we're almost out of time. And I want to make sure you mention to our listeners the things they can do to find out more about your group, Debt Collective, and the kinds of actions they can take in this moment where the nation is focused uh, on student debt and what the, the federal government can do. Yeah, absolutely. You can go to debtcollective.org and join. Uh, we are holding organizing calls, uh, oftentimes several of them a day, uh, with different ways to get involved. We are planning a week of action, the week of March 29th to April 2nd, uh, to call for full student debt cancellation. So you can organize a local action or join one uh, if there's one already in progress in, in your area. Yeah, get involved. We've, we've got nothing to lose but our debt. That was Thomas Gokey, a visual artist, organizer, and co-founder of the group Debt Collective. Find more analysis and commentary on the campaign to cancel unsustainable student debt by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues 
affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs and streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WXDR in New Orleans, Louisiana, WHYS in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, KKRN in Round Mountain, California, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.